Folks, I often invite you to have your, your Bibles open uh, and follow with me uh, as we look for a few moments together at God's Word. I'd, I'd encourage you again to do that this morning. It'll help you to, to follow uh, what we're thinking about together, and it'll reassure you that I'm not making this stuff up, but that it's, it's here in God's Word, and, and He speaks, and we listen together. Let's pray together. We've just sung, Lord God, of Jesus, God's righteousness revealed. Father God, we thank you for sending your Son into this world to die on the cross to rescue us, to live and to show us how to live. And Lord, we thank you for the witness of Scripture to the the life and ministry of Jesus. Thank you that we know much of what he did and what he said and, and that this record is your gift to us. Spirit of God, we pray that you would come and speak the word, make it new and living for us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just last week, Claire and I watched a few minutes together of Question Time. Um, It was from Edinburgh uh, on that particular occasion. And as usual, David Dimbleby had a a panel of politicians from the various uh, major parties uh, and also some other public figures. They were answering and attempting to answer questions put to them uh, by members of the audience. As I watched, I couldn't help but notice something that I suppose I've always known about these question time kind of scenarios. Not all the questions are genuine. It's not always the case, or mostly even the case, that a person asks a question wanting genuinely to hear the answer. So some questions are asked as a trap to the respondent, trying to get them to say something to incriminate themselves, to to lose face before the audience. Uh, Some questions are asked only to demonstrate how smart the questioner is and somehow to score points against an opponent, maybe another uh, person in the room. In our passage today, Jesus faces question time. And in the passage we're limiting ourselves to, uh, we see two questions in particular that he faces. The first question is asked not by David Dimbleby, but by the Pharisees. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is not a genuine question. This is not a take it at face value kind of question. This is one of those questions that's designed to to trap Jesus, to get him to say something that would incriminate himself Uh, have him lose credibility before his audience. Matthew tells us in verse 15 already that the Pharisees are out to get Jesus and they want to trap him in his words. So that's all very explicit here in this passage. Remember what's going on here at this point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. The triumphal entry will have caught the eye of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. 
that event where he went into the temple and he kicked over the tables of the money changers and temporarily ground the temple to a halt, that will have added to, to the sense of, uh, of danger. What, what's this guy doing? What's he up to? And as he's been doing these things and teaching these things, we find that the Jewish religious leaders are starting to question Jesus and his authority. So Jesus responded by telling three parables, and that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Jesus tells three stories. He tells a story about a son who makes a big deal of being loyal and obedient, but turns out not to be loyal or obedient. He tells a story about bad tenants thrown out of a vineyard and replaced by a new set of tenants. And he tells a story about ungrateful guests who, res- who refuse to come to the, the wedding feast that they're invited to. In 21, verse 45, Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees knew that Jesus was talking about them. These guys realize that Jesus has cast them in the role of unfaithful sons, of bad tenants, and of ungrateful guests. So they're angry. And Matthew tells us that they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus. That's where these questions come in. These Jewish religious leaders want to get Jesus to say something that they can use against him to attempt to get rid of him. So, they, they go into their question. Well, actually, they don't, at least not immediately, because they're clever. They know how to do this. Uh, they seem to have a, a bit of expertise here. So, they begin with a bit of flattery. And I guess the theory is that if you want to get somebody to incriminate themselves, you, you bum them up a wee bit so that they're off guard. They're basking in the, the sunshine of the flattery and all of a sudden more likely to, to make an unguarded response and say something to incriminate themselves. They say, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You're not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. It's wonderful stuff, what they say here about Jesus. It's all entirely true, but they're not genuine in in coming with these words on their lips. It's all just flattery. When the question finally comes, it's a brilliant one. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a brilliant one for their purposes because Jesus is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't by this question. It's a bit like asking a public figure in Northern Ireland whether orange men should be allowed to march down the Gravachy Road or not. Say yes and you lose one half of the community. Say no, and you lose the other. If Jesus says that it's right to give tribute to Caesar, then he's going to lose face among his fellow Jews. He's going to validate Caesar's annual head tax. He's going to endorse this this terribly painful reminder of Roman occupation. If, on the other hand, Jesus says no, if he gives people permission not to pay tax to Caesar, then he's on a head-on collision with Roman taxation policy. He'd be earmarked a dangerous revolutionary. He, He could be brought to trial for insurrection. 
So it, it looks on the face of it like Jesus is entirely stuck here. He's in trouble. But, but I just love reading these gospel accounts. There's no sense that this even remotely phases Jesus. He sees right through his opponents and he tells them so. Interesting. Doesn't hold back. He knows their evil intentions and he tells them. And then he answers their question. He asks to see the coin that's going to be used to pay the tax. It's a Roman coin, and he wants to use it as a visual aid to talk about the the answer that he's about to give. So he has the coin before him. I have a coin here, 10p. I see on it that it has a portrait of Queen Elizabeth II, and it has her name on it and some other letters, which I don't rightly understand. Some smarter people in the congregation might. By looking at this coin, I know immediately that this is produced by Her Majesty's treasury, and in that sense, it's her property. So when Jesus has the denarius brought to him, he asks the question, whose portrait's on that one? Whose inscription? And like children waiting to give the answer at children's address, you see the boys' hands up. Yeah, that's easy. It's Caesar. It's all very simple. And Jesus continues with the simplicity. He gives a simple but stunningly appropriate answer to their question. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's got his picture on it. His name's on it. If you're a kid in the playground at school and you find a coat with somebody's name on it, what do you do? You give it to the guy whose name's on it. He's got his picture on it and his name on it. Give it to him. Jesus says it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar. And that's been the teaching of the Christian church ever since. Romans 13, Paul says... Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, give taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Seems like a difficult question. Everybody on tenderhooks. Jesus made it look easy. As he so often does, though, Jesus goes beyond the question that he's asked. And he invites the questioners here to consider something much deeper and much more profound. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's already said in answer to their question, but then he encourages them to give to God what is God's. Jesus tells his audience that denarius, it's got Caesar's image on it, it's got his name on it, therefore give it to him but he doesn't tell us what we're to give to God. He just tells us to give God what's God's due. And it all begs a question, what is it that we owe God? What's got his image on it? Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, 
He created them. Do you see it? Human beings made in the image of God, we have His stamp on us. No matter how much that image of God in us is marred or distorted by our sin, still it remains. His name is inscribed on our hearts. Friends, we have been made by God, each one of us, to be given to God. We're to give ourselves entirely to to our loving Heavenly Father, the one who created us, the one who longs for us to be His image, His representation in the world. Folks, whenever we we begin to understand the, the wholeness of this giving ourselves to God, I think it puts a lot of smaller questions in perspective. We no longer struggle to give a few pounds to God we begin to ask how we can give more and more and how that which we keep for ourselves can also be used for God's glory and for his honor. As we begin to to grasp this, this giving ourselves to God, we're not smug anymore about the little bits and pieces of volunteering that we manage to do. We start to wonder how every moment of every day of that 24 and 7, can be lived for him. When we begin to understand this, we no longer hold back our love. I felt challenged about this recently when I read one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. And I read with it Eugene Peterson's reflection. He says, the most lavish gifts of money or material possessions cannot substitute for love. A life offered up in the most extravagant sacrifice cannot substitute for love. Try as we might, we cannot find a substitute for love. But I do try to find substitutes. Lord, I try to substitute things like things or or deeds or symbols, I try to avoid the risk and the venture and the pain of love. Forgive me and return me to the way of love. Give to God what is God's. Your time, your money, your love, All of you. We can deal with the the second of Jesus' questions in this question time much more quickly. We said at the outside that there are different kinds of questions that can be asked in a setting like this. And the Pharisees have already asked a, a trapping kind of question. They want to catch Jesus out. And now the Sadducees are going to ask a question, but they're only going to ask a question to demonstrate how smart they are and how wrong uh, their, their rivals, the Pharisees, are. So the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's really the, the background and the important thing to understand. So they come up with this case study about a, a woman and her seven husbands. 
And what they want to do, I think, they want to demonstrate to Jesus and to the Pharisees and to the watching crowd that it's ridiculous to believe in the resurrection. If you believed in the resurrection, where would it take you? Look at this scenario. Again, Jesus' response here is masterly. He deals with their specific case study, actually the whole of their little story, he deals with it in a one-liner in verse 30. He says that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Jesus knows that the case study itself is actually a red herring, so he doesn't elaborate on it very much. Gives a short answer, moves on. Instead, he goes right to the heart. The Sadducees' failure to, to accept the resurrection. He says in verse 29, You're in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. He says that they don't know the Scriptures. Now, the Sadducees, they only accepted the first five books of, of our Old Testament, the books of Moses. And the reason they didn't believe in the resurrection is that they didn't see in those first five books any explicit mention of the resurrection. So they, they said, it's not, in our, it's not in our box, it's not in our worldview, therefore we, we won't accept it. Jesus does a really interesting thing because he answers their question about the resurrection by going into their scriptures. They've only got five books to choose from, so he goes into the five books. Look at verse 31. About the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus takes these guys so committed to to Moses and the books of Moses, he takes them back with Moses to the burning bush to hear again the words of the living God. Exodus chapter 3, record them for us. I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When God says this to Moses at the burning bush, he's saying it hundreds of years after these guys had died. And he says it in the present tense, I am the God of, of these, your forefathers. And it implies that they're still alive. These guys aren't dead. And Jesus' words make that final point. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So at this point, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they have died, but they're very much alive. Resurrection's more than a possibility. It's a reality. And elsewhere, Jesus taught that he was the one through whom resurrection is possible. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus said the Sadducees got it wrong for two reasons. They didn't know their scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. Quite often, those can be somewhat related Many people will accept the Word of God only insofar as it's acceptable to their reason, to the, the limits they place on God's power. So, for example, we'll have people outside the church and inside it who'll reject the virgin birth of Jesus, 
They'll reject his miracles. They'll reject his resurrection from the dead. They'll reject his, his physical return one day. And it's their, their rationalism, their, their preconceived sense of what's possible and what God in his power could possibly do that limits then their, their understanding of how God is at work in this world. Friends, could I encourage you today not, not to limit God in the way of the Pharisees, in the way that actually probably each one of us is prone to. Don't expect the true and the living God always to fit into your categories and to tick your boxes. Be open to the reality that there is more to life and more to God than you now know and will ever know. Don't deny the power of God. Friends, this morning we've spent a few moments here in the company of Jesus at this question time. And we've seen him field a couple of very different questions. One designed to trap him, another for his questioners to demonstrate their their wisdom and, and their knowledge. They appeared, both of them, for different reasons to be difficult questions. Easy. Easy for Jesus. We all have our questions, don't we? We have those questions that we feel comfortable to share openly with other people. And then we have some questions that we don't like to articulate. Not even to our closest friends. And I want to tell you this morning, I don't have the answer to most or even many of your questions. I have plenty of questions of my own. And the church, although it might sometimes appear and present itself as having all the answers, if only we look hard enough in the thick enough books and go far enough back to the right, the church doesn't have all the answers either. But as I read these gospel accounts and I observe Jesus, I'm becoming ever more convinced that he does. That I could throw him any question. I could throw him my angry, cynical questions. And he'd respond graciously and full of truth. I could throw my genuine seeker questions and he'd give a gentle answer and show me what what I can't yet see. Folks, Jesus has all the answers to all the questions. None of them are too hard for him. We won't always get to know those answers now and in this time. I'm not suggesting that for one moment. I'm not suggesting that this is all easy. But what I do want to share with you is my growing conviction that the answers are there and lie with Jesus Christ. In the end, the big question 
being asked in this morning's passage isn't one for Jesus to answer. I think it's one for us. God's our creator who's made us in his image. Jesus, our savior, who's shown us the image of the invisible God. The Spirit's here. He wants to indwell us and, and, and let this image glow out of our lives. And we stand this morning before our great God and he asks us whether we're willing to answer his one question. Are you willing to give to God what is God's? Are you willing to give him this? This thing with his image stamped on it? Are you willing to allow him to to start to clean it up and to polish it until it becomes more and more visible? Till the image of God, the the picture of Jesus that that he longs for us to be just becomes more and more evident. Give to God what is God's. Let us pray. Father God, we would prefer to dabble in the kinds of questions that we've been thinking about here this morning. Uh, these, these religious-looking questions that help us to avoid the deep realities. Father, thank you for Jesus for the grace and the truth that he demonstrated in all of his dealings with us. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you'd give us courage to respond. Lord, help us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Help us to be good citizens to do as as we should do. But Lord, show us the the much more glorious life that you call us to, a life in full surrender and obedience to you. Lord, help us to give ourselves to you and to know what a joy that's going to be. Lord, in the end, that's no sacrifice at all. That's entering into the great and the good life that you have created for us. Lord, help us to give you what is yours. Amen.